I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Susan Sauerman and I met in early 2021 when we traded emails after she had read my book. In her first email to me, she wrote about her upbringing in a home ruled by terrifying domestic violence perpetrated by her tyrannical father. Susan has taken her story of abuse and tragedy and turned it into a breathtaking narrative of courage and ascendance. Here is Susan Sauerman's story. So Susan, I want to thank you so much for being on the When Dating Hurts podcast with me today. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. I really appreciate it. You're welcome very much. I want to ask you to begin, what are your earliest memories of growing up with your family? How would you paint that picture for us? I grew up in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania. I was a pretty privileged upbringing. From the outside looking in, looked like a normal family. I had a sister. She's four years younger than I am. My brother was born much later when I was 11. Uh, My mom and dad were well-known singers. They also sang abroad. Uh, Okay, let me stop you there. So how, what were they doing? What made them well-known? They performed in the Academy of Music, uh, Metropolitan Opera. Uh, They did Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, They do it together? I mean, they're a team? Yes. Wow. That's mm-hmm. really remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're part of several okay. different companies, uh, Arden Singers, Rose Valley Chorus, the Savoy Company. I mean, like recording artists too? I mean, we're talking... Um, they did. Rec- they had they had albums. I actually have a couple. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Pirates of Penzance, um, Sound of Music. That is incredible. Camelot. You know, just a number of different, too many to go through, but... Wow. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. So they were they were known, you know, for the most part, things like I said, from the outside looking in, um, most people just had no idea what was going on behind closed right. doors. Right. From the street, everything looked pretty uh, uptown, pretty good. S- yeah, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So go ahead. I don't want to interrupt, please. I would say that, you know, my, my family just seemed normal, but inside the house. It wasn't normal, um, at least for me. And, and it only kind of felt like that for a long time, that it was just my relationship with my father was really horrible. Now, when would you take, when would you look at that relationship with your father? Like what age would you be maybe when it occurred to you in your mind, wait a minute, this is, this is not this loving, uh, this is not a loving dad situation here. Mm. When, when would you, what can, can you recall when you had that light come on in your head? Yes. Uh, I was in kindergarten. I was about six. It's probably my earliest memory because it would relate to any time I would need to ask him for help with schoolwork if my mom wasn't able to assist me or it was something over our head. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was Mensa smart, and I was a, oh. a huge disappointment. I was uh, learning, had learning troubles, had a very hard time understanding things. I was in special classes and I frustrated him 
he was just not a patient man in any sense. Trying to approach him to ask a question resulted in just fear of even going to even ask the question. So he was going to blast you if oh, he yeah. came in. Yeah. And it took time. Like it, it would start off where I would go in and ask him if he could help me with something. And I was already nervous. And when he would try to explain it, I just wouldn't get it. And the more uh, uh. frustrated he became, the angrier he became. Right. And then the more, you know, sh- closed off I became, I just shut down. And so if you were to take the similar problem to your mother, how would that go? Um, very different. <laughs> My okay. mom was very embracing, very embracing. She was very warm, loving, but she had her shortcomings too. There were certain things that she wasn't really good at with schoolwork. And so she would try to help me. And if it got to a point where it was something that she couldn't help me with, or I think some of it was her wanting me to try to have some form of normal relationship with my dad and would ask me to go ask him. And I would, re- you know, reply, you know, I don't want to, like he's makes, he's afra- yeah, not, I'm afraid of him. And not going to go well. Right? No. And she would respond to, well, I have to live with him too. So, so with your young eyes, your six year old eyes, you, you knew what the relationship with dad was like, which was bad. And then typically getting worse. The relationship your mother had with your father, how did that look to your six year old eyes? At that time in my life, it was normal. I didn't, at that young age. I mean, did they look like two people in love? Because they're singing and doing things, so. Yeah, and, you know, my dad was very, he would shower her with with lots of gifts. And it seemed, as I looked at them, that they didn't, there wasn't really an issue there. um, Because I was too young. It wasn't until I was older. I know that my mom knew that, you know, he was violent with me. Um, there's numerous occasions that I can remember when I was young. You know, I went and opened up a window one snowy morning to look at the snow outside in my bedroom uh-huh. window, and he clobbered me right into a dresser. Oh. I mean, he. I left the trash out in the kitchen by accident, Went must have ran upstairs for something, came back down, the dog got into it. Oh. And my mom's <laughs> like, oh, you know, Susie, you know, we got to clean this up, and my dad you, heard it. Is, is, do you think mom's looking at it like clean it up before he gets here? Yes. And that's exactly what we were like trying to clean it up. And right. he, he came in and he was there and lickety split. He had me in his grasp and he flung me through our back door storm window. It was like, oh. you know, glass screened window. And I smashed into the window, uh, the door broke the glass and fell down four cement steps. I don't even know how I didn't cut my head open, but I mean, I was cut up and I was hurt, but like, that's the sort of thing. Like he was just like, it was like lightning, a flash of lightning. And and it was that quick. Like he would just be like, you know, you clean this mess up and you know, you're stupid pea brain. And that was my nickname. And my mom, she she would try to you know, calm the situation down. Like, you know, oh my God, like she would immediately just jump in and reactive with trying to help me where she just, most of the time that she didn't really argue with my dad, it was kind of rare if she stepped in and really took him on. Right. Pretty much it was like just the aftermath that he would storm off and go into his studio and stay there. And then me and her would just assess the situation. Yeah. She was like your corner man in the fight, wasn't she? Yeah. Wow. I'm so sorry about that. Thanks. Did you ever have any feelings, even at that age, why he was like that? 
Well, I thought in my young mind that it was because I was so um, learning challenged. I was a disappointment. Um, I You weren't intellectually nimble enough for him. Right. Like I just, I was so terrified of the man that I just couldn't focus on anything that he was saying. Like you're just, when you're extremely afraid of something, like you just can't grasp. You shut down, don't you? Right. And as a kid, you You hear words, but you don't hear ideas. You know, I know know I'm going to get it if I don't do something right. And it was either going to be like a a, a beat down or I was going to get you know, scolded or, you know, yelled at and screamed at, intimidated to the point where I just, it didn't matter. I kind of just, I just didn't have the strength to fight, fight back, you know? And I, most of the time felt it was my fault. Uh, A lot of the time, it wasn't until I got a little older or into a teenager where I was starting to realize it. Mm -hmm. I'm not the bad guy in this story. Yeah. I'm not the one that's deficient in the story, right? Yeah, when I start to see things more, because as you get older, you 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 definitely see things in a different light. I started to see things were very different in our house. Now you have friends, I'm sure, in the neighborhood or friends at school, and you go over to their houses and you see mm-hmm. their parents. Was yeah. that a big indicator for you that what I have at my house is not normal? Yes. Yes. Um, like you see a loving dad, you probably thought, what is that guy's story? Right. There was quite a few of my neighbors that had very loving families, large families, you know, five kids, four kids, six kids. I was actually happier to be at school than at home. A lot of kids were like, that's weird. And, <laughs> you know, and I'd yeah, like most to Most kids be... want to get home. You want to <laughs> get to school. I, I wanted to avoid being at home unless, unless I was at home and I could be I would tippy toe around in my home to be as far away from my dad as possible, you know, either in my room or in my right. mom's. Right. Let him pass. Yeah. Just stayed away. Quiet. Sure you look through like the, the cracks of doors at different times and see if he's <laughs> kind of like he and his shadow have passed and then you can maybe, maybe could hear him. proceed. You could yeah, hear, you hear him. him he coming. wore keys. He wore this like oh. key clip thing to his uh, pants and the jingle of his keys were a sign that he was coming up the oh, stairs God. and I was going to get it. Yeah. It's like the jailer's coming. You yes. Know, he's going to, you know, hand out How some more ironic. punishment. And, right. Yeah. And, it, and he really was. He was, he was that guy. Mm-hmm. Did you feel there was anyone that you could turn to and share what was happening to you at that time? Yeah, I uh, had a really good neighbor friend uh, who lived across the street from me. He came from a really large family. He was my friend for a long time. This was this was a young guy. Yes. Okay. We were we were like six months apart. Okay. We known each other since we were two. Oh, boy. And um, yes, he he knew he knew that things weren't right. Now he knew because he could see it, or he knew because you were informing him. Um, he knew because yeah, because I I I did. I did, when I was older, you know, divulge to him, but he also had had heard, he, he could hear some of the assaults that occurred. Oh, wow. Um, from outside. Okay. And, um, now, how, how old would you and he be, your friend, how old would you be when that's, when he's catching on? Like, how old are you at this point? Because earlier you were six, but how old are you now in the story? Um, between the ages of 11 and 14, okay. the 
louder things got in the home, or I should say over time, neighbors became aware of the yelling and my dad's shenanigans. He would try to poison dogs that came on our lawn. He oh my. painted our fence with grease oil from an engine so that people would try to like climb it. They would get it all over their clothes. Um, oh. He was, he was a very arrogant, narcissistic and, and just, he felt that he was entitled to pretty much everything and anything. <laughs> um, most of the people in the neighborhood did not like him. <laughs> most yeah. people did well, not I like him. I guess that would probably happen. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. He wasn't really doing anything to ingratiate himself. So, right. So, and he would assault me outside, like um, screaming, yelling. If I do something dumb, like I was roller skating and I, I went and braced myself on his car and called uh, me and the kids, neighborhood kids were all there. And he came running out of the house, like screaming, like, you stupid pea brain, don't touch my car. Get that, you know, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. get away from what's mad with you, you know. And they would see it. So the neighborhood caught on over time. Like, sure. okay, so that's... What was he doing for a living at this time? I mean, it wasn't strictly the singing job, no. was it? No, he had a, um, a lucrative business doing... <laughs> Uh, illegally taping and recording performances at numerous locations around everywhere and selling oh. them off reel to reel. He had an elaborate system in his studio, about 40 reel to reel tapes. He was very, very proficient. And doing that, people that's, would come to I him. Mean, that's what he did. Yeah, that's part of it. Then he also worked for a printing company. So he. No, that was a legitimate one. That was did, his. Did that one have nine to five. spend? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that one. That one didn't have a spin to it. Um. He wasn't pirating know. things there like he was everything <laughs> I, else. I, I wouldn't say that. He, there was quite a few things around our house that had uh Hathaway logos on it and note tablets and all kinds of stuff. I couldn't say that he didn't probably pull some things from there as well. Kind of lift, lifted some things. Sure. Uh, uh-huh. Large pockets and yeah. Yes, he was well known for thievery. It's also documented that he was a shoplifter. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, yeah. he was caught in the act and the whole thing. Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And and what was uh, okay? It's one thing to be caught. What was the punishment for that? Um, I am not aware of what his punishment was. I would just know that in the custody hearing, it was brought up that a lot of my mom's jewelry and items that she had no idea that he she was getting on anniversaries and Christmas and things like that had. You know, she found out because he got caught and he was arrested. And I, as far as I know, you know, you don't go to jail for that, but you definitely have most likely fines and a record, you know, on your your permanent record. Um, and he his his reaction to that, from my mother's reflection to me, was, uh, you know, that he just, you know, was angry that he had to wait in line too long to pay for the item, and he got pissed off and just pocketed it and walked out. But that's the kind of person he was. He just felt like he was. So it's owed. justification. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In I his re- eyes. You know, justification is an interesting thing, and I, I can't tell you perfectly by rote what the definition is without stopping here and looking it up. But it kind of comes down to doing things you probably shouldn't do, and then saying, "Well, I because of this and because of that." So it's like you said, my time is so valuable 
that for me to stand in line doesn't make sense. So my time, so I'll just stick it in my pocket and walk out to the car and, um, you know, what you justify what happened. Like they deserve that. They should have a better checkout system. Yeah. That was, that was one of the ways he justified a lot of things is that, you know, (laughs) I didn't just do it, but I had to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. So you were getting verbally and physically abused. How about your siblings? although younger. Okay. So my sister suffered similar uh, fate. Um, Did she have a nickname as well? No, no. My sister was just being younger, you know, doing silly things that toddlers do and young, young girls do. I mean, she, she was seven. Uh, My brother was on his way and uh, she scraped um, a section of the her bedroom wall with her fingernail. I guess she just found like a little spot and then she started scraping it and made like a design on the wall. My dad saw that and he huh. just beat the ever living heck out of her for that. And I remember being in my bedroom hearing it. And to this day, I just, you know, that's just one occasion. You know, there's other occasions where, you know, just being a little kid, you're a tattletale. You, you tell, oh, I saw daddy do this. And he, she'd go tell mommy and, and he would just slap her to the ground, you know, just. In other words, your sister was relaying what happened to her and then he'd come in and give her part two. Is that well, what you're saying? It was more like my sister witnessed a few things that my dad would do to, to, um, to antagonize my mother. Like he ripped up sheet music or uh. he would uh, break one of her knickknacks and my sister would run and tell my mom. And oh, then so a I confrontation see. So would she's ensue. kind of ratting him out and yes. he sees that and it's like, and how dare you? Exactly. And the so emperor. She, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you should, when you're a kid, you think that you're being not, like, like kind of like, you know, you want to protect your mom. You want to, you want to tell your mom what's going on. Sure. And her and I both did that. My, my brother, on the other hand, was, he was a baby he didn't, he became more later on, more as a pawn that my father would use now, against how, how my would, mother. Okay. How, how might that work? What would be an example of that? <laughs> well, it's a little later in this situation, but he uh, kidnapped my brother. Uh, when we moved, when we were living on our own away from my father, uh, he kidnapped my brother for, for two weeks, took him to Florida. We did find out where he was. And then he held on to him until he lost custody of of us kids in mm. in the trial custody trial you know he would just put the house into terror yeah, when that was he, going on yeah it was it didn't seem like he was very interested in dealing with his older two kids because we had opinions and we kind of fought back but he my brother was just he was just a baby he was only three three and a half when a lot of this was going down wow dad uh dad had some deep issues didn't he Mm. Yeah. Yes. And then some. So Susan, when you were 14, you witnessed something so horrible, you thought you would never completely recover from it. And what was that? It was, um, my mom had been strangled in our kitchen one night when I was 14. It was uh, October of 1980. Okay. She came screaming as well as you can with this, uh, hoarse voice, I, I knew it was I knew it was her, but I couldn't quite understand why she sounded the way she sounded. She raced into my room, and my father's not far behind her, and she starts mouthing 
in this garbled voice, you know, he, he tried to kill me. He tried to strangle me. He tried to kill me. And, and at that point you, you immediately realize what the marks are on her neck and what's happening. And it's, you know, this whirlwind of emotional terror that you're going through that you realize that your dad tried to kill her and he's standing there pleading with her to stop saying that. And yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was horrifying. It was, it was a, uh, it was the moment that the next day we left, we packed up all our stuff in green trash bags and grandparents came and my grandparents took us to their, their house. And now that was your mother's my parents? My mother's parents. Yeah. Okay. They did take her to the hospital the next morning. Um, I, I, I got my dad to leave the room by like, uh, I got up on my bed and I started screaming, get out, get out of my room, get out. And I, I, I just, I just wanted it to end. Of course. You know, I just wanted it to stop. And, you know, we kind of huddled together. And uh, I know my. Well, so, so, so you're yelling at him to get out and not, and then he does. He, he did. He, he looked at me and his arms, like, kind of, his shoulders, like, and arms are slumped to the side. And he just, like, robotically walked out of the room. It was the kind of the craziest, weirdest thing I have seen. And. Oh, it had to be. Right. It had to be. I stay with that night for a moment. Where does everybody sleep that night? Well, my mom and my sister slept on my other twin bed in my room, but she first went and called her parents to tell them what was happening. So we kind of all stayed together in the same room. And and the brother? And and my, my brother was a baby, so he was still in a crib. Um, okay. I honestly can't remember if he was, you know, she probably left him sleep in his crib. Okay. Um, I don't recall him being sleeping in the room. I do. Re I just remember my sister and all of us crying together. Right. As you circle the wagons yeah. that evening. Yeah. So you, you call or your, your mom calls her parents and then the next day, then what? Uh, we're, we're moving out. We're grabbing everything we can physically put into three vehicles. And, uh, and where's dad during that? Uh, he was held up in his studio, like always. He's busy taping and just that's where he would go for his solitary brooding. You know, most of the time that's 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 his spot. He was either right. That's his cave. Yeah, he was in there. So you blast off, and I guess you wind up at the grandparents' house. Would that be right? Yes, we we stayed there for um, probably about a month or so before we found an apartment in Plymouth Meeting. It was a Sussex Square Apartments. Okay. We moved in there, trying to start our new life. A new life, of course. Yeah. And so how's mom, what's, what's mom's demeanor at this point? Is, is she, I mean, is she terrified or is she looking at it like, okay, that chapter's over and I can breathe and we'll have to figure it out from here, but it's going to be better. I mean, I, yeah, she was, uh, she, what, what do you think mom's thinking? She was still pretty shaken up. I mean, there's so much that you have to do. I don't know if there's time to think she had to find a job and trying to figure out how she's going to afford these things and protect her kids and deal with him. You know, he would still show up at places. Uh, at that time, we didn't have cell phones, so he would call. And once he, he would stalk her, so he'd find out where she worked. Um, so there was there was a lot of behind-the-scenes things going on that she didn't tell us about. I found out later. Where, where was she working at that point? Uh, she was working at a place called Protect a Life. It was like an alarm company. She was a secretary. Uh, she, okay. After, you know, 15 years of being a stay-at-home mom, she went back to work. I was pretty impressed. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's it. That's remarkable. Yeah. Good for her at that point. My grandparents really helped a lot with financial things because obviously, you know, we just didn't have that kind of to, for her to have to go back home. It that was that was a probably a pretty emotional thing for her as well, you know, to have to rely on her parents and most most people don't want to have to do that. No, you don't have to open up and say, this is really what's been going yeah. on. And my do, grandparents do think- were upset. You know, they didn't know anything about all this. You know, they're finding out now that their daughter's an abused, you know, per, you know, she's been going through abuse. And, you know, my mom had to open the can of worms. And so it's everybody's in a pretty big shock. So your your grandparents didn't have a clue that Mm-mm. this was going on up until that point. And all of a sudden now they yeah. go from zero to 100%. You got, yes. Yeah, that's that's got to be just so traumatic for them, yeah. even though they're not on the receiving end, but they want what's best for their own child, your mother, and of course the grandchildren and the, and the whole world isn't what they thought it was. Exactly. Uh-huh. So next in the story, what happens? There's just, a, there was a lot of ups and downs, but the good part was for the first time we felt this enormous ease living on our own in our own apartment you know the camaraderie between all of us became very connected we started to lighten up and feel more uh safe Mm -hmm. just being together without him being around just changed the chemistry between us immensely sure sure Um, life was looking good it was really doing you know nice there was a moment here and there where he would say stupid stuff when we would and did begin some visitation. He was very manipulative, especially with my young, younger siblings. He, <laughs> where, where was the visitation? At the Plymouth Meeting Mall, most of the time. Maybe like okay. a, maybe like a movie or or like a bite to eat. There was not any visitation back in the Marion House uh, for a couple months. Um, okay. It seemed like it was going okay until my mom started dating and uh how far after the strangulation and the moving out to the grandparents and now the apartment about three months three months after she She started dating somebody at the company that she was working at he was a volunteer fireman really super great wonderful man just super nice um we had tons of fun light and airy just getting a taste of what really life is like you know it's like you got to look at him and say Wow, I wish that was my dad. Uh, exactly. It was very refreshing. And we right, were all very happy. And I kept saying, like, I felt like, is this really how people live? You know, they live in the, these happy. It, it was being that I was physically experiencing it was wonderful. You know, mm-hmm. it was, a, it was it's a kind of the time. dream you had. And all of a sudden you see it. Yes. You're walking through it. I right? am. I was. And you're trying to imagine if we can just, uh, if mom and dad can get divorced, if he can just take his act somewhere else yeah. and, and then we can regroup with this yeah. this new new dad figure. This yeah. could be pretty great, right? Mm-hmm. But then February came and uh, he kidnapped my brother in 1981, February, as I said. Um, so that started things stirring again. So what are the circumstances when that happened? Where's um, your brother? How, how could that happen? Well, my brother was, my, he had asked if he could take my brother for the day for lunch. Um, I mean, isn't he still three or so? He was three. Mm-hmm. Okay. He was just being watched at a daycare center so at the So he's like, well, let me come by and pick up 
What's your brother's name? Um, I'll I'll use his name that that's in the book. His name was Trey. Okay, sure, uh-huh. that's fine. Um, so he picks up Trey, and this looks okay. And Dad's taken to you to movies or had lunch at the mall or different things like that. So this is just another day, probably not that memorable. You're thinking, or Mom's thinking, everybody's thinking. Exactly, she's and not thinking. So he comes of and it. scoops up Trey, and then what happens? He had already made pre plans to go on the auto train down to Florida. Uh, so he calls my mom numerous hours later on his way, of course. He, I don't know where he was when he made the phone call. And he just said that uh, he was taking him on a vacation. He had the right to do it. And he'll be back in two weeks. And, uh, uh, <laughs> well, that's like the rug being, rug being ripped out from underneath you because my mom, like, lost her mind. We all were just freaking out. It was just, just you'll having never see him. him again. You have yeah, to think you'll never see him again. That's what we were worried about. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to figure that. Yeah. He did come back, but he refused to give him back. Um, he was going to, he was in contempt of court. He decided to hold on to him. I don't know how. I, my mom filed an emergency court injunction or something to get things to be sped up so that we could get back to court. And when he found out about that, he consulted her at a bank that she was at. Uh, surprised her at a bank and like she goes into the bank just to do some transaction and he shows up no she gets out of her car and she's walking to the bank and he approaches her and uh he saw that she didn't have any of her wedding rings on and he then uh, pushed her up against the brick wall and he punched her in the face um and tried to shove his wedding ring down her throat oh so this is witnessed by a couple people um he takes off she, you know, there's a report filed and then she goes home. And of course we get home and she's got a fat lip and our, my grandparents are there and we get home from school. And that was the first time I had heard her say again, he's trying to kill me. He's going to kill me. He's never mm. going to let me go. He's, he's just not. That was a rough night because she, at that point had expressed her feelings for, you know, if he kills her, you know, she wanted to be cremated. Like she started talking about her funeral arrangements. Oh my God. That's, that's tough. Yeah. Boy, and that's that when you're tough. like, mind uh, is blown because yeah. you're put back into that same terrifying feeling right before we left our house that night, you know, he tried yeah. to kill her. I mean, here's this iconic heroic person in your life who is telling you the last thing you'd want to hear. Yeah. And my mom was so warm and she was beautiful. She had an, amazing amazing voice a lot of accolades from people who heard her sing um yeah i'm sure she was great to, just to talk with just to listen yes, to yes yeah she was she was uh anybody that ever met her always said and even to this day people who remember her they just remember her being just such a lovely woman mm-hmm. yeah yeah i can picture her so she sees something coming and then what happens <clears throat> well, in March, um, the end of March, the 31st of March of 1981, uh, my mom won custody. So she has primary physical uh, custody uh, of all three of us Are your kids. parents divorced yet at this point? Okay. No. Okay. No. That was like a huge hurdle. And now it was just a matter of the final whatever court judge assessment to end it all, which was scheduled for May 5th. Okay. Signed the papers and, and we're good, right? 
Yeah, yeah. So everything, you know, my mom had won custody of us kids, despite my father's fabrication of so many things and just trying to twist and make my mom look like this horrible person as plus was what a great guy he was i'm sure he was sending that Uh, up too right well he kind of burned his bridges with all the things that he was doing you know the judges and the lawyers all figured him out real quick so we're all happy and we're celebrating then comes uh april you know easter we take a family photo together mom me my sister my brother life is good you know we got a puppy and we're all enjoying things. I, my school's great. The friends that I made are just um, so embracing and warm. I mean, I, like I said, it was, <laughs> I can't make this stuff up. Like it was just so, hmm. you know, like a TV show. It was what, Was the so fireman nice. still in the picture? He's still okay. there. He's still involved. You know, he moved in. Oh, okay. We, we're, 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 we've got our own nice little right. family. I mean, you you've know, got the really cast. Happy. You just have to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's going great. The one weird thing is when my father had my brother, he enrolled my brother into this daycare center that's located at a church in um in Lower Marion. So the daycare's inside the church, and the weird thing about it is my mom had had an affair, and this church was where she had met the guy. She was being a soloist at the church, and that's part of the reason why there was a lot of a uh, upheaval in 1980. Um, uh, nobody blamed my mom for having an affair, obviously, because, you know, when you're in a horrible relationship like she was. Yeah, you'd like um, somebody who lo- know, who it was, cares about you and loves you yeah, and treats you Exactly. Nicely. So she she's human. The fact that he enrolled him in this church daycare is weird because he had consistently reflected to me and the family how this place was such a horrible place. And, you know, it's where he dealt with having to relive this is where she had had an affair. And so when my brother get my mom has to go drop my brother off now that she has custody at this daycare center in the church. Isn't that kind of weird? Don't you find that very strange that he put him you know, of all places he puts him in this this place? And she's like, Oh, he's probably using it to rub it in my face. She goes, But he, but Trey really likes it there and I'm just gonna let him enjoy you know, you know, being there. So now she's dropping him off at this church. Then a few weeks later, it's like uh, April 25th, I'm going to say, 26th, like that weekend. My ex-boyfriend comes and tells me that my dad, he's really acting weird. And he's like, I got to talk to you. I can't I can't hold this in anymore. I need to talk to you. So, tells, so okay, so you're still 14, right? Okay, I'm you're 14. F- and you say ex-boyfriend. Yeah, I had dated this guy for... A couple months okay. um, when I was but, living in Lower he, Marion. He sort of what sees the house, or see, how does he know there's weirdness he, going on? He with was dad? doing side work for my dad, like painting and little things around odds and ends, or things around the house when we were dating. Okay, um, so he has visibility out. of dad. My father used him on numerous occasions to help him with certain certain things. Okay. Manipulated him to do stuff. Okay, so he manipulated him to go with him to a gun shop. So he's there as a witness that my father has bought a gun. Okay. My father had the gun from like April 1st and he had it for a couple of weeks. I think he just uh, stewed on it. My, my boyfriend stewed on it and was just very nervous about how my dad was behaving and told his, told his parents and wanted to tell my mom and me. So that weekend, my dad's acting really weird. He's 
pissed off and screaming, yelling, ranting, raving. It was a terrible visit about how my mom has ruined his life. And a couple days later, my mom goes to drop off my brother at the daycare center, which was April 28th of 1981. And my dad confronts her in the parking lot. It's like right in front of this, uh, the church is right next to uh, houses. It's in within a very, you know, in a community yes. um, of homes. And so you're really kind of on a curb and there's a pathway to the, the daycare center. So probably maybe 15 feet from the cars is this daycare center door. Mm-hmm. In his confronting my mom, he pulls out a gun and my mom you know, starts screaming and he's got a gun and she sprays him with mace and she starts running. He begins to shoot her as she's running. And it's probably only about 20, 30 feet from where the car was to where she landed on the front lawn of a home right next to the church. And he shot her numerous times. She went down. And uh, then he reloaded the gun while he was next to her and he shot her three more times point blank in the side of her head. Oh my God. Calmly got up, walked to his car, got in the car and drove slowly down the road. Witnesses saw later. There's numerous witnesses, numerous play by play from the trial, which I attended. Oh. As is, I was called as a witness for other reasons. Character, written witness, et cetera. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he, um, he was, he was arrested down the street. Um, and he, uh, was, you know, put in, put in jail for a couple months until he got out on bail. Oh, so in really? June, he got out on He actually bail got out June. on bail. Yeah, his mom bailed him out oh. he was out for a couple months and then uh is that the so house we're... arrest type of thing or no we... oh no not at all not not back then he, he was out on jail and out like we were terrified because oh he's yeah you know, maybe he's me and my grandparents were like what where does he go what next if, wait what if he comes he reloads what if he comes to to, to get us sure you know, yeah come, you have you know? to figure it's that's... a terrifying feeling to be in the position of knowing that this guy's out walking around and he was out from June until December and he oh was my. tried and convicted that is insane. in five days. That, yeah. He was, you say he was convicted in five days. He was convicted in five days. The trial lasted five days. So he was, how long did the jury need to come up with their uh, guilty? It was less than four, less than 45 minutes. He got, he got, um, premeditated murder, first degree murder in the state of Pennsylvania, life imprisonment. Yes, life is Wep- life in Pennsylvania. Weapons charge, right, and weapons charges. Thank gosh. So state prison next for him? Yep. He went to Greaterford for a couple years, and then after he was in Greaterford, we didn't realize how close that was. My grandparents found out that he was in that prison, and they were just like, you know, they couldn't believe he was that close. But oddly enough, um, he was transferred to Dallas prison which is up Still in like Wilkesboro. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he died in prison on February 4th of 2020. Not that long ago. He was 39 years in prison. How old was he when he died? 89. Oh, okay. So he's 50 when he did this. He was 55. 
55? Okay. My dad was 55. There was a 14-year age difference. He, oh. She was 19 when when she met him. She was 19. Okay. Less than two months later, they're married. He was 33. 33, yes. At the time, yeah. Really, it's just a jaw-dropping story. Absolutely. Oh, that is just so much. That That is so bad no matter how it goes, but to be a witness to every last part of that, like you were, is just, you know, my heart just is right there with you. Thank you. And, and your sister and your brother. It's just incredible what you've had to endure and, and still come out of it a survivor and a positive person and a positive force for that matter. Thank you. So you have said in some of your writings and, and inf- information you've given me that your mother and your grandparents were really the memory of your mother and the inspiration of your grandparents. Could you talk about how they guided you in their own ways? Sure. My mom was just so strong. She always tried to aim for a better life mm-hmm. for all yes. of us. And the strength it took for her to leave her abuser is a feat in itself because that's a scary thing. And, you know, the fact that she did it and, she, you know, she gained enough strength to do it. So I, I great admiration for her in that, in that. And not only that, that, you know, she was my mom and I loved her and she was just always there when I needed her. And I wanted to make her proud that, you know, she was gone and, and I was going to desperately try to never give up and, you know, be there for my siblings. And then my grandparents, they, they gave me a lot of wisdom. There were some tough times where I had to deal with some of the, just being a teenager, I was very angry and, you know, you go through these ups and downs. But some of the things that they said to me just stuck with me. And one of the things I never wanted to do was ever be like my dad. I was absolutely adamant that I am not going to be like him. I'm not going to do things like him. I'm not Mm going to think like him. I use those things to propel me and just to keep every day, just, you know, try to pick myself back up and just get to the next day. And I did that for a really long time. Finally, there were some moments in my life where I just still didn't feel like I had reached that strength that I was looking for, that constantly still being afraid of something. And I realized what it was that I I was still afraid of my dad. He wasn't even in my life anymore. And he was still controlling me. It's a hard thing to explain, but I needed to rid myself of that. So I went and faced him in prison 11 years later. Oh, that's brave. It's weird. You do, I didn't realize that you have to get permission to go visit somebody. My understanding is you have to get permission from the person you want to see. Yeah. So I, I was able to obtain that. I had already had two children. If you could stay with the prison part, but yeah. what, the, what does that scene look like? I mean, are you sitting across a table from that person or is it... Kind of you're yeah. on the one side and they're on the other side of glass and you have the phone. I've seen that scene. Yeah. No, what this does it was, look like? This is what I thought. Yeah, I thought it was going to be the whole phone and the glass thing. And nope, I get in there and it's like this open cafeteria and there's a bunch of chairs wow. and vending machines. And I I was immediately terrified. I mean, this you person know. could jump you and snap <laughs> wow, your neck. That's, that's what I'm thinking. But then I see the prison guard standing around and I realize that he won't not, get very far. He'll get, right. Like he, they would take him down. So it kind of appeased me <laughs> enough that I was able to mm-hmm. uh, pinch myself quite a few times to just keep my focus on. Like I am there. I chose to be there. I'm there. I'm, I'm there for a purpose. And uh, he comes out 
and he he's gray, a disheveled. Is he wearing the orange? Wearing, the dark he's wearing blue like or? a maroon okay. colored scrubs, yeah. nurse scrubs, almost like what they oh, look really? like. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And he comes and he takes a chair and you sit in? Well, first he tried to come over like he was going to hug me. And I just never got up to receive it. Like, I'm like, dude, like, really? So uh. he goes and sits across from me at the other end of the table. And How far apart would you say you were? Uh, just like if you were a standard picnic table maybe type of space he's on one end uh, on one side and i was on the other maybe three feet away yeah yeah okay and uh, all the little girl feelings immediately i'm eight years old you know i'm like right back to like you were moments like in, in your my mid-20s life 20s or so and where, all of a sudden oh, you're a little yeah. kid again yes so i'm i'm like 20 so it was like 92 so i'm probably about 23 24 at the time mm-hmm. and so what did you talk about well he started talking and he's telling me how he likes when he has visitors because then he gets good food. And oh. I I was immediately stricken by the he has visitors part. And that's where the conversation started back up. Started like, I just listened to him. He never stops talking. Just going on and on. I'm telling you, it was probably an hour of him nonstop. He never asked me how I was doing. Uh. Nothing. And that's when I'm sitting there and I'm like, why is he not saying anything? Like I, I kind of lost the focus of being worried and afraid to being more annoyed and upset. Right. Finally, I get up to go. I just, I interrupted him and I, I went up and got like a, some drinks and some food and brought it back to the table. And that's when I decided I was going to say something. And I said to him, I mean, aren't you, aren't you even going to ask me like how I'm doing or say you're sorry for what you did? Uh. And he says to me, I didn't think, I didn't think you would want me to talk to you about any of that. And, uh, I, I just, I'm like, okay. He goes, and he starts like just talking again. And I, he's, I said to him, well, you know, that's okay. I don't, I don't really need to hear, to hear it because, you know, my grandparents and my mom have, have really been the light forces in my life. You know, they're the ones that have made, kept me strong. So, well, that he got me, he went right, it was zero to 60. He became this angry nasty man right away right. Uh, and he was like oh you would believe that your mom and your grandparents are such liars and as soon as he started acting like that i was just there he is there he is there's that guy That's my dad um, yeah that he's just so he would just talk about how she and him um you know how how she she was the the reason it's her fault. Everything was her fault. Everything was my grandparents' fault. It, everything was everybody else's fault mm-hmm. but his. Right. Yeah. He was the never took ownership. He's the victim in the story here. Exactly. He's in falsely incarcerated. He should have only gotten five years. Uh, I, I, at that point, I'm just like, I, where's the door? I just like, I needed to go. Right. Yeah. Of and, course. Uh, I just basically got up and told him, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go now. And uh, and I did. And as I'm leaving, he yells out, "Can I? Can I write to you?" And I'm I'm just at the point where I don't care. I just, what my response was. I I just said, "Whatever, fine." So as I'm leaving and I go to sit in my car, I realize that what I had gone there to accomplish was to, to kind of I guess yell and scream and tell my dad what an ass he is and all these things and how he ruined my life. And I thought that's not that's not even 
I I didn't need any of that. I I chose to be there. I I had lived my life with Adam all these time. I'd gone pretty far and I broke the chain, the cycle. I had two kids and was raising them with love and never going to let them have to experience what I experienced. And it dawned on me that I didn't need his approval. I didn't, I already had it myself. I did this all by myself. And I had all these wonderful people in my life that had inspired me to get to where I was. I just needed to keep on, keep on going. And I had control now. He's in prison, not me. And I was going to have a life and I was going to make sure that he knew how wonderful my life was without him and that he didn't break me. And so I stayed in touch with him for 28 years. Really? On purpose. I didn't see that coming at all. On purpose. I made sure he knew he had grandchildren and great-grandchildren and that I was doing well in my life and that I had, it was, it was kind of like in a nice way, rubbing it in his face. This, I wasn't this is how the pea be, brain turned out, right? That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right, Bill. Uh, and that's kind of was a way for me to feel like I had control. I had the command that I needed in my life to keep going. And look what my mom, my grandparents, my kids, my friends, my family, I have all of this. And, um, it was, uh, it was, it was, um, it was what I needed. Whew. That's beautiful. Mm. Hey, thank you. So. So I've, I've actually had a good life and I've made my mom proud. I know. And my grandparents and my siblings and my three beautiful children and my four grandkids. And I, uh, I plan on keep on going. And when they told me, when I got the phone call that my dad died, I actually got a phone call a couple of days before that. And they had asked me if I would authorize dialysis because he was, he was, he was dying. And I said, sure. Give him what he needs, because I felt in my mind that I wasn't going to let hate guide me, mm-hmm. and I was going to give him what he never gave my mom, and that was, you know, a choice. And when he died three days later because the Dallas didn't work, I did go see him with my brother, and I was able to just tell him, you know, did you, I asked him before he died, you know, do you, is there anything you want to say to me? Do you have anything you want to say? And he said, um, I said, you know, do you have anything you want to say to me? And he, and I said, you know, he says, uh, I, I know why I'm in prison. And it was because of the company I kept. It was your mom's fault. Uh. <laughs> and 48 hours later, he dies. I had sent him back to prison to die at the prison. And uh, but when I left that day in the hospital, I said to him, you know, I just wanted him to you know, close his eyes and think about his opera and his baseball and I'm leaving and this is it. I won't be back. This is the end. And I walked out with my brother and I just felt this warmness around me. Mm. And, and I know that that was my mom and my grandparents, you know, that I wasn't going to let his, his hateful and spiteful and nasty life engulf me. It just wasn't going to happen, and I, I, mm. I walked away with a lot of pride, knowing that I had made good choices, and um, he wasn't going to break me, and he never did. You know, the the one thing that occurred to me when you were 
saying all this, especially your first visit with him, was that that you found your own approval. You may have wanted his approval for a large part of your life, but what you gained was your own approval, and that's what you really needed. Yes. You needed to feel you were okay, and you realized you were okay. And and I like the fact that you never gave in to the hatred. You didn't turn it around. You didn't go to the dark side, so to speak. Yeah. And, and even though he was in his own actions and style and everything in his own mind, his own being, he, he lived there, probably would have felt good if you lashed out at him and sent him hate mail. And, you know, and, and then you could just be on the list of people who made him do what he did, you know, cause your mother did and your grandparents did. And then you can be on there too, because he's not going to process or remember those things that he did. It's just so much better that he needs to be the hero in his own story. In thinking all of this through, do you have any idea why he was the way he was? Because people who are abusive, and I know you know this, people who are abusive aren't born that way. They somehow, they see it in their own family. They pick it up from popular culture. Somehow it becomes the go-to, but it becomes a tool they pick up. It's not a tool they're born with. Why do you think your father was so so deeply twisted, basically stealing things throughout his life and put a, putting I, himself upon people and challenging them and hurting them. And why do you, why do you think he was so dark? I first want to start with the fact that I feel that people have a choice. Now, granted, he was brought up in an environment that wasn't healthy. Um, he had a horrible relationship with his mom. She was very critical. She married his father. His biological dad was very abusive from what I hear. Okay, there you are. Then she remarried to somebody who probably wasn't the best of father figures as well, from what I understand. But he moved 16 times in his childhood, so he didn't have a very good set environment of mm-hmm. uh, friends or some sense you know, of stability any... or something. Right. Yeah. So so these are these are excuses and or these are his tellings of his right. upbringing. Right, sure. However, <laughs> you as an individual can choose whether you're going to do something that's right or wrong. Right. And, and he chose wrong right. all the time. Right. Yeah, it sounds like um, he did. You're right. He felt entitled. He had inherited traits, which I believe narcissist behavior and, and some of the things that he felt he was entitled to constantly where he wanted it his way and that was the way it was going to be end of story if for example like if he was in a performance and somebody else sang better than him he would practice to the point of making sure that he was better if he didn't know how to cook something or if he didn't know how to make a specific drink he would he went to bartending school to beat that person so the next time he met them he could say I went to bartending school and I can make this drink better than you. Like he, anything he found that he was inferior to. Right. Insecurity. He would, yes. He would make sure that he. He would come back muscle bound. Yes. That's. Compared to that other person. um, So it's like, you think you can do that? Look at this. Yeah. That was his personality. And therefore I've beaten you and then I move on to the next thing Mm -hmm. and then I beat you. Mm -hmm. So his whole thing was overpowering people. Yes. Would you say? Yes. It's his insecurity, which is correct. He was extremely insecure. And so. Right. It's a story that 
pushes a person so much that, uh, you know, when I, when I hear things like this in these interviews, it's hard, it's, it's impossible to find words to react because every, they all fall short. You just find yourself falling upon cliches because what, what someone has gone through and thank God you're on the other side of it all, but what they've gone through is, is so devastating that sometimes saying anything just is a cliche, you know, it's just, just nothingness, just words of nothingness. What would you say to someone who feels they're in an abusive, unhealthy relationship? People who are in the situation that I was in or currently, if they're in currently in that kind of bad situation is a, I, I can only relate as a survivor and as a victim is like, you know, go with your gut. You know, you're, you know, as a human being, we have this gut reaction and we know when something's not right. And I know that some people don't have the ability to, to, they may not financially have or family. They may not have a, an out. Yes. It's hard for them to just say, this is bad. I'm out of here. Right. Right. Exactly. So, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't she just leave? You know, my, my situation's 40 some years ago and it's not an excuse, but it's, you know, she was a stay at home mom. You know, she's, how's she going to support her kids? She, she's not working. You know, people become immersed in the mental abuse as well. You know, they belittle them and they, they make them feel inferior. And so all of that said, I just want other people who are listening to remember that you go with your gut and reach out to anyone, anyone you trust, even if it's someone you don't know, like a hotline, an advocate organization like Laurel House or, you know, victims of abuse or any friend or family person you admire that you feel could possibly listen to your concerns and give you sound advice, something that will make you feel that is actually a stepping stone to get you to the next plateau of getting out and moving on. And these days there is an abundance of outsources that you can use. And I just kind of hope that that's, that's a hope that I'm just absolutely inspired by all of the different resources that are available these days. That would be my advice to anyone who's listening. I agree with you. What happens so often to people like your mother is that this is slowly but surely raining down upon them, whatever this situation is, this horribleness, and they don't know what to do. They don't know who to turn to. Of course, they're afraid if they if it gets out that they went to anybody, mm-hmm. they're going to get it worse, but they're alone. Yeah. You know, they're on their own island trying to deal with the storm of a person that they they right. are related to in some way, their partner. And you're right. And, and I've talked with a lot of people who went through that time period of thinking, I got to get through this myself somehow. And I don't know if I can get through this. And there are so many resources out there. There are national ones. There's a national domestic violence hotline, 800-799-SAFE. You mentioned Laurel House, which is Norristown, Pennsylvania. I've been in touch with them soon after my daughter was killed. Yes. And even though I live outside of Baltimore, but she was killed outside of Philly. Right. But yes, I've met so many of these people. They are the most wonderful, generous people I've met in my entire life. My last yes. 16 or 17 years, is, uh, I'm just in awe of these people and they're so generous and I try to be as generous back to them. I know I'll, I'll never be able to break even with that, but 
I so, hear you. I feel the same way. You know, you really give us a lot of great advice here, and and your story carries so much information and so much weight. At some point, Susan, how long ago was it that you thought I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to write my entire story? I'm going to go all the way back through those horrible days as a little kid, right up until now, and I'm going to commit it to paper. Like, what what got you going on wanting to do that? It was back in. 2015 popular radio station that I listened to for years mentioned Laurel House often. So I looked them up and um, read about them and realized that the same year that they were becoming an organization in May of 1980 was the same year that I was going through this heightened events with my family. Mm -hmm. And that inspired me. So I began walk a mile in her shoes, going to Laurel's loft, um, participating in any events that I could possibly participate with and um, being involved. And then at the same time, I felt this desire to start writing things down, but I had already kind of done some journalism in a sense, writing things down as well. I had always kept articles, the subpoena that I had been given, the letter I got when I was in school to go to the office and the day my mom died. I kept all these things. I'm a huge collector of memorabilia, my mm-hmm. mom's pictures, and always researching to find more people who have audio and pictures of her. And the more I just kind of get an epiphany, the same situation, decided, you know what, I'm, I'm inspired by all of these things. If I'm inspired and all these people would constantly tell me how inspired they were about my life and about my mom's life, I was just like, well, maybe... I can help others too. So as an homage to my mom and my grandparents and over time, I wrote it all down, got it all down. I kind of stopped because my dad was still alive and I never wanted to give him anything. I didn't want him to ever read how he had made me feel. I was just emphatic about that. And no sooner was I pretty much done most of it and had been involved with Tina for two years from Laurel House. Tina was a counselor? Tina is one of the directors at Laurel House. Okay. And um, Tina Quincy. And I you know, told her that I was writing my book and wanted some insight on a few things. And she was wonderful and very helpful. Great. And then uh, in February of 2020, I had met with her. And at the same time, my father had passed away. Mm-hmm. So it kind of gave me this green light to finally be able to finish everything. Right. I had the manuscript completely done up until February of 2020. Okay. When my dad died. You just didn't want to let it get out into the world. I, didn't, I, I just, just my manuscript. So I finished I after my father okay. died, I was able to finish my story. Okay. Because now that he was dead, there was all these I mean, missing links in his death and information that I wanted to add about that. Like, how did I handle it and what did I do? And so once all of that was completed, mm. then two months later, I sent my manuscript to an editor. Okay. Well, like four days later, she calls me and she's like, the, I, she's like, I got to work with you on this. She was telling me it was incredible. And of course, I, I, I didn't know how to take that. I don't, I didn't take, I don't take compliments well. I just, just kind of feel, felt awkward. And she worked with me every week as we, as so I wrote my entire manuscript, 350 pages in chronological order. Mm-hmm. So she was able to take every week, we molded each chapter. For 11 months, she worked with me, never charged me an additional dime. Oh, that's wonderful. She was moved by my story and knew that it had a great purpose and wanted to get help me. So everything was finished in June of 2021. 
you know, after we had B readers and all that stuff going on and during COVID and then during 2021 from January until June, you yeah. know, you and go B- through all these processes. <laughs> right. And B readers are people who just read books for a living and give reactions, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We had great feedback so that all of that was promising. Everything was going along great. And uh, I wound up in the hospital in June of 2021, hmm. found out I had stage four ovarian cancer. I had to have major surgery. Uh. She, at the same time, had told me that my manuscript was, you know, finishing its substantial edit and it would be ready for proofreading, formatting, and then done. Mm. Boom, on Amazon. I used all of those positive things to focus on during my recovery and my six months of chemo and uh, was able to publish my book live on Amazon on February 5th. Of this year? Yeah. I mean, that was when I realized it was actually on there because you put it on and it takes a couple of days for things to pop up. Like, hey, it's on there. <laughs> so, how, how did you feel when you got your first proof of the book? Yeah, I had or, I had ordered the proofs Isn't before that I went live. That's yes, a wonderful. That was and it has, it in my it hand. It has that not for resale stripe exactly. on it. You know, yes. but even still, you know. Yeah, it was amazing. That's a different feeling in your life. That's such an accomplishment. And, yeah. and knowing what you were going through physically at the same time, that's an accomplishment in all caps. Yeah. Good, good for you. Great. Thank you. Yeah, it was. It was an endeavor. It was, um, you know, putting your life down on paper. Yes. Unraveling all those emotions again, reliving it. One box opens another box, and you're just emotional. Uh, I, 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 I cried constantly. I still do. There are moments where I read the book. You know, because you have to read it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Oh, sure. And I cry every time I would read certain sections. And it was just um. Yeah, some chapters emotional. are tough. I, I also didn't tell my family that I was doing this. Uh, I When I got the proofs, I made a family meeting and I had everybody here and I explained my path, my journey and why. Why I had to do and this. And I just, you know, part of the thing was I didn't want to... I was afraid if I said I was writing my memoir, my family would be like, well, are you going to say this? Or are you going to write that? Or are you going to tell them this? And the point was, I wanted it to be something that I had experienced being that it's personal to me. And I didn't want someone to start talking about their memories and then it affect what I remembered and which can really happen. Of course. Um, so I just wanted to get it out and I wanted to make sure that I was extremely honest, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure that I was very loving and nurturing to, to my siblings and my family. And I feel, I really feel I did that. I named the book, The Courage I Learned. Yes. And I felt it was extremely fitting because it is true. Truly what it's a, it's a great name. It really does sum up your journey. I'm very proud of it. My family took it really well. It's a legacy to my children and to everybody. And that's my heart written on paper. I poured everything I could emotionally into this book. And I know it's a tough read. And I've been told that by many people, that it is a tough read. But it has a positive ending. and Or as you read through, you can read the journey of that I'm trying to get to that place of peace. It's a heroic story. And that's what makes, I'd look at it like this, that 
you know, when you sit down and write a book like that to keep people around, it has to be entertaining. And I, and I, I mean that in the best sense, it has to, the pages as they come along, the chapters as they come along, they have to, the person reading it has to feel rewarded for turning the page and continuing. It can't be what I call a boohoo story. Like, gee, everybody, here's the story. Hey, you should really feel sorry for me and my family because falls so short. It's not about that. It's no. about what you experienced, but it's about what you overcame and where you are now. And along the way, if written well, the book also lets people in on ways to spot these type of things in other people's relationships and help other people or what to do with it. So it, it's got a, quite an arc to it to go from the deepest, darkest places where you were, where you couldn't do anything right, and you were stupid, and you're a pea brain, and you're nothing, all the way to you have totally overcome all of that, and you have taken those things that have been thrown at you and used them, and used them in great positive ways to help yourself, help your siblings, help your family, and really help a lot of people. Thousands, as it turns out in time, thousands of people that you'll never meet will, I'm sure, read the book and say, well, you know, maybe I don't have what she had happening, but I should be able to do something with, with what I have happening. And that's what right. you really want. Yeah. I, I was also able to sprinkle throughout the book some, you know, positive reinforcement as well. Like I had said, Laurel House had been very helpful in referencing a few things that, you know, I had questions about and how the laws have changed. And in the beginning of the book, I had, I have information to, to reach out to Laurel House, again, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. And mm -hmm. at the end of my book, I also have the resources of, um, does your partner do this? Does your partner do that? And there's a lot of questions that come directly from their website that I was able to put in the end of my book Good. that I feel are just awesome tools to just read through because mental abuse is just as nasty. And sometimes it's not a physical scenario. It can be a mental scenario, which is very difficult sometimes for people to recognize, mm -hmm. especially if they came up in an environment where they were mentally abused and then they get into another relationship, whether it be boyfriend or marriage, and they're mentally abused and others will see it and they don't quite understand what the big deal is. But once they maybe read something, they would become more like, wow, maybe I'm just missing, you know, okay, so this maybe this isn't right. So. You hope the light comes on in the minds of some people who read it to say, wow, you know, I, I know what that is. I didn't, you know, I've had people, I've, I've given talks sometimes where someone will come up afterwards and say, you know, I dated this guy for a year and I'm not dating him now, but I didn't realize it was abuse until I heard what you were talking about today. Right. You know, yes. I've had people, I'll go through the warning signs and they'll look at it and afterwards say, I could have checked every box that you put up there. Exactly. But they, they didn't realize that the accumulation of all those warning signs equals abuse, right. especially when it's an ongoing yeah. repetitive campaign yeah. of this type yeah. of thing. You know, jealousy and, and you're in a relationship when you're in love, you can be so blinded by yes. certain things that come, you know, because your emotions are invested as well. So there's a lot of times that people stay in a relationship for reasons that, you know, they think are admirable, but 
you know, actually they're really lessening their selves by continuing to allow these things to hurt, to happen. Right. And they become more and more trapped because their self-esteem is going down and their reliance upon the power person who in this case is the other person. The gaslighting, you know, can be (laughs) absolutely. Yes. Can be very overpowering. Right. They, they, these people who have this type of personality are very good at using the tactics that they have learned work for them to entrap their partners. Yes. They know what they can use above their head. They've been able to do that for a long time, and it's something that's intertwined within their personality. Sure. Yeah, so. they have a whole toolbox of the go-to right. things, and if it works, great. If it doesn't work, mm-hmm. you find another, or you increase yeah. the volume. They make the so other person feel guilty, and they use those tactics so well. You know, it's really easy if you want to hurt, you know, someone you love or your partner. You you can quickly go to things that will immediately suppress them or make them feel that it's their fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Susan, is there anything you think that we may have missed talking about today that you want to leave us with? Well, I want to, I want to let everyone know that I do have a website. It's um, thecourageilearned.com. And if you go to that website, it gives a little information about me. I don't look the same. I used to have beautiful long red hair, and right now I'm dealing with this uh, new peach fuzz that's coming in. <laughs> uh, you're beautiful. Don't um, worry about thank it. Thank you. Oh, very kind. Thank Don't you. Don't worry about it. Um, it also has a link to the Laurel House to donate, and I am giving portions of proceeds from the sale of my book to Laurel House as well. Good. That's wonderful. I am very proud of that. And uh, knowledge is power. I really believe that, and I believe that if you can just take that leap. If you're in a bad position in a relationship, you know, if you can take that leap, find that outlet, you can have a positive, happy, bright life. You can, if you want it, just do whatever it is it takes to get there and just don't give up. Just don't. And don't go it alone too. As you said earlier, I think that's very smart. Talk with someone about it reach out, like you say, to Laurel House or some mm-hmm. local domestic violence agency. Exactly. If you go to their website on a, on a laptop and, and you're afraid, you can quickly gl- click out. They have all kinds of buttons that say that. Right. Click out real quick. Right. Um, if somebody, if a perpetrator or somebody in your house comes walking up, click, I'm out of here. Skilled counselors. Right. That, you know, you call, they are skilled counselors 24 hours a day. You know, they'll listen. They give advice. They give information that you can utilize when you're ready or if you are ready. Um, right. And, and step by step too, you know, you, chances are you won't be in this horrible relationship and one phone call and it's like, oh, I know what to do. And then I'm out of that relationship and everything's just great. It's going to take time. It takes time for these unhealthy relationships. It takes time for them to knit themselves together and get you entangled. So you have to expect it'll take some time to work your way free from that. You have to expect it that way. There are no quick fixes for something like this. There just isn't. No, but the reward at the end is is your freedom. Right. You get yourself back. Self-preservation, you know, moving forward to better days. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just want to thank you for everything you're doing and you and I met through emails and we've been in touch over the last year plus. And, and I didn't know a book was in the works until recently and now it's out. 
So I wish you the best with that. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Right now it's more, you know, just sitting back and being happy that I accomplished this goal and listening to the feedback from individuals who've already read the book and, good. you know, finding. Yeah. I want to get your book. I have to get your book. Positive. Thank you. I read your book. That's as soon as I read your book is when I emailed you. Yes. Uh, I was extremely moved. Of course, you know, you've, you've had your own hurdles to go through for sure. And I, I want you to know that I'm very grateful that you brought me on your podcast and, and that everything that you're doing to help others has been just astounding, you know, and keep Thank it up, you. keep going. Thank you. I intend to Wonderful. absolutely do. Well, Susan, I want to thank you so much. And, you know, your story is an inspiration to others that someone who is experiencing any of this right now, any kind of abuse, whether it's they're having it happen to them personally or if it's happening to someone they love or care about, someone they work with, could be a relative, could be anyone, they don't have to go it alone. And and uh, the fact that you are taking this experience that you've been through, which is just absolutely remarkable and what you've done with it is even more remarkable. I think that success stories like yours, these survivor stories, give people who are currently in the throes of this horrible domestic violence, gives them courage and hope to get help and get out at some point. And it may take a while, but but knowing you can get out has got to mean a whole heck of a lot, you know, that things can change. Yeah, and- emphasis on can. You can get out. You just have to find that niche, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is, hang on to it, you know, reach, reach for the stars. Just never give up. Just keep going. That's absolutely right. That's what you have to do. And there's a, there's a big, uh, there's a big dream at the end of it. And it's, it's much better than what you're going through. So. Yes. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We'll, thank you. Bill. We'll be in touch. Thank you too. Okay. The When Dating Hurts book was published in paperback in the middle of 2020, followed soon after by the ebook version. While those two were out there in the world informing about dating violence, in early 2021, I launched the When Dating Hurts podcast. Now, in 2022, I'm publishing the When Dating Hurts audiobook. I did the narration myself because this is my family's story. It's also a story that can save one of your family members. Find the When Dating Hurts audiobook on Audible, Amazon, or iTunes. It's the same life-saving information from the print versions, but now in listening form. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. The When Dating Hurts audiobook is available now.